Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Scootybarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Scootybarger with this week's message from Story Point Church. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So um, before I get into the message, I want to just kind of connect the dots for you because you probably don't look at the church calendar uh, like, like the whole thing at one time. You're probably just looking at the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But since we're in the office here, we have the benefit of not only being part of the planning, but we also get to see the, the scope of ministry that we're doing. So I want to connect the dots because I want you to see the theme of our existence, Okay. So two or three weeks ago, we had a group from um, Mississippi here, and these young adults stayed at the church building, and they spent their days, Monday through Friday, knocking on 2,500 doors in Gulf Breeze proper. So every single home in proper got a knock on the door, and if they answered the door, a a kind conversation, and if the conversation led to it, uh, talking about Jesus. But if nobody was home, they got a flyer that said, hey, we welcome you at our church, and these are some of the events that are coming up. And then fast forward just a couple of weeks to this past week. On Tuesday, we were able to, I say we, a few of us went over to UWF, and we served lunch to the faculty and staff of UWF. We, we, We served it to them as a way of just reminding them that the Baptist Collegiate Ministries is here, and we care about you, and uh, we want you to know that you're valued. And then we went back on Thursday, a couple days ago, and we led the worship uh, time for the BCM uh, on Thursday night. And we also provided food and afterwards fellowship for the whole group. And then on Friday night, two nights ago, we had a comedy show in here. How many of y'all went to that? It was good, huh? That's a pretty funny dude, right? And Mutsi was here, and he, he, just, he just killed it on the jokes. But he told me afterwards, he said, brother, I hope I wasn't preaching too long. I just felt like I just had to say something. And, uh, of course, he always talks about Jesus a little bit, but we got an extra dose of that. And, and he said, I just felt like somebody here needed to hear the gospel so clearly. And I said, brother, you were right on it. It's good. And then today, we're talking about Jesus, right? And then this coming week... On Friday, we're going to have an egg hunt, and it's so we can talk about Jesus. And then we have Easter. And then in the end of May, a few folks are going to go to the ends of the earth and find people who've never heard the name of Jesus, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to them about this person whose name is Jesus. Have you seen a common thread? The whole point is, we're all about Jesus. That's why we exist. If it wasn't about Jesus, we wouldn't even need to show up. We could just go do a meeting at the beach somewhere or or just go hang out at a a club somewhere. But but we're not a club. We're a family, and and we're a family with a purpose. And our purpose is very simple. We have good news. And that good news has got to be shared because the Bible tells us how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless they hear? Unless somebody preaches. And how can somebody preach unless they're sent? So, God, you're sending us because we have good news. But anytime there's good news, you have to actually ask the question. If there's good news, what's the bad news, right? 
And this is where I want us to spend our time today in Romans chapter 8. That there is incredibly bad news. There's this thing in life called suffering. Now, are you guys familiar with this concept of suffering? You ever heard of this thing called trials and tribulations? Have you ever heard of, of, of brokenness and chaos and confusion? You see, the reality is we live in a world that is full of suffering. And the right question, or the, rather the obvious question, is this. Hey, pull the house lights up, please, so we can see. Can you all see the Bibles? I, I can't read this. So the obvious question is this. How can a loving God continue to allow suffering? I mean, that's a fair question, right? I mean, if God is God, and if He's all-powerful, and if He's all-knowing, if He's all-loving, why doesn't He just end all suffering? I mean, isn't that what a good God would do? That's a good question. And honestly, that's a question that all of us probably at one point or another have asked, but certainly it's being asked on a daily basis around the world. And there is an answer to it, and the answer to it is this. Yes, God is going to end all suffering. And in fact, God continually ends some suffering But the reality is we're living in a broken world, a world that was not created broken, but a world that became broken because of disobedience to God. And therefore, through the disobedience to God, brokenness, suffering, and death entered into the equation. And you and I are living in the the remnant of that suffering. So in Romans chapter 8... Verse 28 and following, let's find out what the purpose of this suffering is, okay? We're going to look at its origins in a minute, but in Romans 8, verse 28, the Bible says this, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. So here's what the scripture is saying. We know that in all things, God works together, or we know that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Now, there's there's an understanding in this that needs to be more clear. Things don't work together for our good. God works all things together for our good. Now, if you go into the original language of the text, you'll find that that's explicitly clear. Things don't just happen to work out for the good, right? It's that God is working out these things in our life for the good. So what then is the good? So the question is, if there's suffering, what good comes out of the suffering? Well, out of the suffering, God works these things for our good, and our good is this. He tells us in the next verse. He says, For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So we're, the good that God is working is He is conforming us into the image of of his son. That is called sanctification. Okay? Now there are four things that happen to every follower of Jesus, every believer. All right? And we find them all in this text. Go to verse 30. It says, Those he predestined, he also called. That's number one. 
And those he called, he also justified. That's number two. And those he justified, he also glorified. That's number four. The third one is the sanctification, being conformed into the image of his son. So here's what that means. You cannot be made right with God unless God calls your name. It is God who brings you into a relationship with him. God is the one who starts the whole ordeal. What that means is you can't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I want to be holy. Now, you can wake up and say, I want to be a better person. You can wake up and say, I want to do better things. I want to do right things. But you cannot wake up one day and say, you know what, I want to be born again. Unless God is stirring in your heart. Because the Bible teaches us it's he who knows you and it's he who calls you. Because you are dead in your sin, you can't hear God. And yet God calls your name. That's the calling part. Now, there's a word before this that it says, those he predestined, right? Now, here's the deal. Theologians have always disagreed and continue to disagree and will always disagree on this thought. The question is, what does this word mean? What does it mean that we were predestined? There are two basic streams. The one stream says that his calling is effectual in that you cannot not say yes. That he, he draws you and you just, it's like being in a riptide, right? The riptide just pulls you out and you can't fight against it. That's the one stream, right? And, and in, in, in the Christian faith, we would call those who are more reformed, or not more, but they're reformed in theology, their theology. On the other side are those who say, yes, God calls, but you have to receive that. You have to respond to that through faith. And so... Even though God calls, you can reject the calling. You can say no to God and want to follow your own way. And that would be those who would fall in more of a free will uh, position or those we would call them Calvinist and Arminian if you want to go to the terms. Here's the thing. We have biblical evidence for both. Now, the Calvinists would never agree with that. But the truth is, we, we don't come to these positions just out of nowhere. We come to these positions because we go, well, this is what the Bible says, but the Bible also says this. So we're working this out, right? Here's what I, here's what I would say on this. Whether you believed in, in, in the effectual calling where there's no possibility to say no, or whether you believe that he calls you and you respond to it, Neither one changes the fact that when you are justified, you are made right with God. Amen? So you can argue about the theological points all day long, and it's a great conversation. Here's where I go. I go like this. I mean, I'm like, yes, yes, but no, no, but yeah, and I'm just, I'm back and forth and back and forth. I can't get over the fact that if I cannot not love you, I can't really love you. So I'm going to lean more towards the the side of it is God's calling, it is God's wooing, it's Him drawing, but I have to be able to say no if I really can love Him because love has a choice in it. That's To me, that's just the nature of love. But here's the thing. After we get through that, we get to the point of I am justified. So the calling is first, but justification is where we are made right with God. Now listen, we are made right with God Out of being wrong with God. So we were dead in our trespasses and in our sin. We were condemned 
We were, we were heading straight to eternal separation in a, in a place called hell. And when God called us, and when, when we were born again, as John 3 says, we become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, and we are justified. That means all of our sin has been removed. The past sin, the present sin, and the guilt of the future sin. You are fully forgiven of everything. If you know Christ Jesus, you are fully forgiven of everything you ever will do. That forgiveness was bought at Calvary's cross. So justification, you can say it this way. It is just as if I'd never sinned. Right? That's what justification means. It's just as if I've never sinned. I'm made right with God. And the truth is, it's not that you've never sinned. It's that your sin has been atoned for. Now, the final step, the fourth step, is glorification. What does that mean? That's when you're perfect. To be glorified is there's no more sin. There's no more, no more brokenness. You are perfect. And we know that that's not going to happen on this earth. That's going to happen when you're raised to life at the resurrection. So here's the thing. We were justified at some point, if we know Christ. We were justified and we're going to be glorified. But the in-between is where the sanctification happens. That's where the real work of God inside of our life happens to be. Because we're moving from being in this dead man's body to living as people who are alive in Christ Paul says it great in Romans chapter 7. He says, look, I want to do right. My heart has the desire to do right. Everything in me wants to do right. But I've got this flesh hanging off of me, and it just wants to do bad. And so I've got this internal war going on. Even though I want to hear and I want to hear, here just doesn't seem to ever want to go right. So this battle is going on. How does God sanctify us? Through suffering. We see, we reject suffering. When we say all things work together, we, we often think of that as this, this nice, easy saying of, oh, it'll all work out for good. But we need to really grasp what this is saying. God is allowing, even purposing suffering in your life and in my life so that that suffering refines us so that we become more and more like the Son. He's conforming us into the image of His Son. So the next time you face suffering and next time you face trials, I want you to say to yourself, it's okay. God is just making me look like Jesus. That really does change everything. You know, I think of a runner. By the way, if you ever see me running, you need to start running too because something big is chasing me. I'm just telling you, I don't run. I mean, I sprint when they open the buffet line, you know. I sprint when the ice cream machine is on. I sprint when, there, when there's, uh, but, but I don't run. I just, I have no earthly desire to run at all. But for those of you who are runners, this illustration fits. A runner will get up before the sun does. My roosters will be sleeping and, and they'll be like, it's time to go run. Whoo, yay, right? They get out and they'll run. And they'll run. And their body's gonna say, Okay, you're done. And their heart and their head's going to go, nope, I'm not done. Their legs are going to ache and their feet are going to hurt and their head is going to be pounding. And then the sun starts coming out and they start sweating and they're dripping sweat. And they're like, I got to be done. No, I'm not done. I got to run. 
And they keep running and running and running day in and day out and day in and day out. And my wife taught me this. She ran the double bridge run. And she was like, I do not want to run today. But I have to run today. I was like, babe, none of this is fun. Like, you come home and you're miserable. You're like tired. You want to go back to bed. You're sweating and you don't smell the freshest. I mean, you're... I mean, I'm just saying, if you're going to run, you're going to not. And it's like, why are you doing this? And then you get in the race and you run this race. And in the race, you start out with this, yeah. And like two miles in, you're like, yeah. And like five miles in, you're like, But then you see the finish line. And you get that second win. And you start kicking it, right? And you just go, one more minute, one more minute, one more. And then you go, ah. And you look like death. But you have this feeling of, I've made it. <sighs> you suffered for the prize. And everything in life that's worth having is that way. Everything. There are things we do that are no fun in the middle of doing them, but we do them because we know there's a prize coming. Listen, the prize of suffering is that you look just like Jesus. But there are some deep, dark valleys in suffering, aren't there? These are the things that we, if God asked us, we would say, no, I want to skip over that. You know, Jesus was no stranger to that. When Jesus was in the garden, he prayed this prayer, Father, I'm asking you to let this cup pass from me. I'm asking you to let there be another way. Lord, if there's any other way that this could happen, I'm asking you, let's let that be the case. Listen, Jesus was not looking forward to the cross. He wasn't blind and he wasn't dead. He knew that the cross equaled extreme suffering. In fact, the word excruciating that we use to to describe pain, right? You look at this chart and you go, oh, this is excruciating pain. That word excruciating literally comes from the meaning out of the cross. And so Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Let yours be done. Because he knew That the only way for you and me to be made right with God the Father was that through Jesus being the mediator between us. Look at what the cross is. The cross is a bridge from death to life. From you to God. That's what the cross is. And so the scripture says we know. The next time you're in the midst of the fire, you can know. You don't have to wonder. You can guarantee know this suffering is so God can sanctify me and conform me to the image of his son. And I got to be honest, that's the only thing that can hold me fast in the midst of suffering. It's the hope in the midst of such sorrow and grief. Because it's the hope of This is not permanent. This is temporary. Because there's coming a day when there's a finish line. And I'm going to step into eternity out of this life. And I'll be walking through a door from death to life. Because Jesus Christ 
suffered in my place, and then he proclaimed victory through him rising from the dead. You might ask the question, where does suffering come from? What's the origin of suffering? Verse, or chapter 5, turn a few pages back in your Bible. The origin of suffering, ultimately, is sin. That's where suffering comes from. God didn't create suffering. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. He created all of the plants and the flowers and all of the, the, the fish and the birds. And He created man and He created the sun and the moon and stars. What did he say after every single day of creation? It is perfect. It is good. So God didn't create suffering. Where did suffering come from? We go to the next chapter. Chapter 2 and chapter 3. And we start to see this, this deceiver enter into the picture. The enemy comes in and he deceives Adam and Eve and says, if you'll just eat of that tree, you'll become wise like God. Oh, God didn't really say you can't eat of it. Oh, he's just trying to keep things from you. And so after all this deception, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and their eyes were opened. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here's the deal. Notice it said the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was, it was the, the awakening to disobedience to God. And the moment Adam sinned, you and I were set on a course towards death. The moment you were born, your clock started ticking. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it's a point, I think it's 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to die. Maybe it's not 9.27, it's in Hebrews though. It's appointed unto men once to die. But after that, the judgment. So your clock started ticking. You ever seen one of those clocks where it's just counting down? And when you're young, it's like, I got all this time. And then when you come 50, you're like, whoa, I better do something, right? And then when you come 80, you're like, I'm on my last breath, right? I mean, it could be any time. And then you become 100, and you're like, please, just end the clock, right? I mean, I'm just joking about that. I've never been 100, but I'm imagining that. I've heard, I put it this way, I've heard a lot of people once they hit their 90s, they're like, you know what? Let's just fast forward this thing. And here's what they always say. I'm just ready to meet Jesus. I'm just, I'm just so tired. I get up in the morning. It takes me three hours just to get to the bathroom. And then my legs, they start to creak and crack. And I bend over and I'm like hurting. And I can't see anything. I, I still got my mind, but I, my taste buds are different. I hear all the time from people who were saying, come, Lord Jesus, just bring me on home. In fact, we have one of our members. Our oldest member died this past week. She was in church on Sunday morning, shaking everybody's hand, laughing, just like she always is, Pat Franska. She went home, and sometime in the afternoon or the evening, she laid herself down in her bed. She closed her eyes. And while she laid on the bed and closed her eyes, when she opened her eyes, she was in the presence of Jesus. She did something right. She did something right. I guarantee you, there's no way you would ever hear these words come out of her mouth. Could I just go back a little longer? No. She's in a place where the Bible describes there's no suffering, there's no pain, there's no sin, there's no blindness, there's no glasses, there's no diabetes, there's no cancer, there's no anything bad. It's all perfect. 
just like God created in the garden. Here's what Romans chapter 5 says. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. So what the Bible is saying is this. Through Adam, this infection of sin entered into the world. And then it spread person to person. And all have sinned. None of us are righteous before God. And none of us are alive in ourselves. When the Bible tells us that we are dead in our sin, I just want you to, I want you to consider what that really means. Something that is dead stinks. Something that is dead is avoided. Something that is dead decays. Something that is dead takes away life. Right? But the Bible tells us in verse 15, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man Jesus Christ overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one, man, from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. So in other words, whereas we are dead in our sin, and whereas we are, we are, are, are moving towards decay, because God sent His only Son to die a criminal's death. He took away the resulting penalty of sin for you and for me. So it was the fact that by living a perfect life and by being crucified, the weight and the guilt of your sin, the judgment of your sin and my sin was placed upon him to where he took the wrath from you. I read in the newspaper, or newspaper, what's that? I read on the internet um, this past week with the, the tornadoes in Mississippi that a, a, a man died because as the tornado was ripping through his house, he jumped on his wife and covered her with himself. And if I read the story right, she lived and he took the brunt of the storm to save her. That is what Jesus did. He stretched out his arms and he wrapped you and me with them. Every lash upon his back was intended for you and for me. Every thorn that was pressed into his skull was intended for you and for me. Every driving of the nails that went into his wrist was intended for you and for me. And the punishment, the Bible says in Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace, being made right with God, was fully upon him. So the Bible says that Adam messed it all up with sin, but don't be too hard on him. You and I would have been the same way if we'd have been there. Even though Adam, through Adam, sin entered and death entered, through Jesus, sin was atoned for and life was given. That's why in John 3, to be born again means that you move from death 
to life. So let's circle all the way back around. How does God sanctify you once you're justified? It's through your suffering. There's no other way. You know, my great friend Sarah in Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee, Sarah Samuel, I'll never forget, I was on the phone with her one day and we were talking about something and, and somehow we were talking about some struggles she was going through and she said, Jeff, my prayer is this. Lord, what do you want to show me through this suffering? I said, wow. It'd be a lot easier just to be mad at God and ask Him to take it away. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with asking God to take away your suffering. You should. I mean, there, there is absolutely you should. But, but, but the end of the prayer should be, but not my will, but yours be done. I mean, Jesus clearly modeled that for us. So I think if you and I recognize that suffering brings about, by the way, that's the title of the message, sanctification or sanctified through suffering. If we change the conversation to where we're, instead of, Lord, why are you doing this, to Lord, what do you want to teach me through this, that will change your direction and trajectory from the suffering. I got to tell you, no father enjoys when his children suffer. No good father. Sarah right now, my oldest daughter Sarah is dealing with a, a broken vehicle. About a week ago, she put it in reverse and it jerked and shook and then the engine died. Called a tow truck, took it to the mechanic. The mechanic said, uh... I don't know what's wrong with it. We took it to a mechanic on Friday. She towed it to a mechanic on Friday. And the mechanic called her back and said, your engine's gone. New engine is necessary. Now, everything in me, as a, now she's 23. She's, she's been living on her own for a couple years now in Tampa. She's got a job and a house. You know, what I wanted to do was go down and take away the struggle. I wanted to drive down, put the thing on a tow dolly, drive it back here, tear it apart, get it all fixed. And just because I, I didn't want her to have to wrestle with this. Because I don't know if you know this, but being 23 and knowing, by the way, teaching at a private school, a private Christian school, you know that she's not cha-chinging, right? I mean, knowing that you're about to have to withdraw $5,000 to put an engine in a car that you just spent a whole lot of money for a couple years prior, and it should be just fine, and yet why did this? No, I wanted to take away all of that suffering from her, but I didn't. And here's why. I said, God is going to teach you through this something that you can't learn any other way. See, if I were to rescue her, and by the way, I was actually thinking about this week. All of my children, there are times when I've allowed them to suffer. And I've watched it. And everything in me wanted to go and rescue them out of it. But I knew that if I interrupted the suffering, I would also interrupt the sanctification that God is performing in their life. So I stepped back and I just... Sometimes I had to even turn away and just go, Lord, it's too hard. But see, what they, I hope, know is that I'm going to let it press them and I'm going to let it crush them, but I'm not going to let it kill them. See, as a father, there's a limit to what I will allow. I will allow just enough to bring them to that breaking point, and if it decides to go farther than that, I'm going to step in and I'm going to change the circumstance because that's what good fathers do. I want to tell you something. God is a far better father than I am. He knows the limits. By the way, sometimes people say this silly quote that says, oh, God won't give you anything that you can't handle. Yes, He will. Yes, He will. 
He intentionally gives you things you can't handle so that you will trust him to handle it. So I sent my daughter a text on Friday when she gave me the news because I was trying to follow along from a distance, you know. By the way, I wanted to call the tow truck. I had, she had to do it. I was there helping her along the way. Shannon was there helping her along the way. But we weren't going to do for her what she needed to learn to do for herself. Because one day, dad is going to be dad. That sounded weird, didn't it? But it's true. Here's the text that I sent her. And don't worry, she never watches my messages, so she'll never know. <laughs> now she will. You got it. What your dad said about you. I said, Sarah, remember this. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So this is his problem. You're just one of his managers. And last I checked, he is pretty good at fixing things. He can always make another one out of nothing. I can promise you there's going to be a story in this. I wouldn't rob her of the privilege of the story. By ending her suffering. There are things that God is allowing you to go through in your life. And he's not fixing it because he's sanctifying you. Because you looking like Jesus is more important than you being comfortable. You being perfected in your faith is more valuable than you being rescued from temporary inconvenience. I love what what St. Corinthians says. It says that we have this tent, right? And if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we know that God has prepared something for us that is not made by human hands. This tent is not the end of the story. There is suffering because sin is in the world all sin, or excuse me, all suffering is the result ultimately of sin, but God has a plan and a purpose to reconcile all suffering. Sometimes while we watch it, and sometimes not until we're in His presence. But here's the hope. The suffering we face now, God restores everything we lost. Because when we're in His presence... There's nothing out of place and there's nothing missing. Let me give you the final, final passage I want to share with you. Then we've got to wrap this up. In Hebrews chapter 5, let me just remind you that, that you and I are simply following in the steps of our Savior. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 5, start at verse eight, nine, uh, eight, nine, uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10. It says, during Jesus' earthly life, he offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Did you hear what he said? The Bible's saying Jesus offered loud cries and prayers to the one who was able to save him, but he didn't. God, save me. No. Yes, but not in the way you want it. I won't rescue you out of this fire, but I will walk with you through this fire. 
The next verse says, although he was the son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience to what he suffered. And then he says, after he was perfected, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And he was declared by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you see the hope in this passage? Here's what he said. Jesus cried out, Father, save me from this, but I want you to be glorified more than me to be rescued from the fire. And God says, I will not take you off of the cross because it's necessary for the salvation of the world. And then Jesus was perfected in what he did. In other words, he did what God sent him to do. The perfection was he accomplished all that God had, had, had intended for him. And through that, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Don't miss this. Your suffering is not only sanctifying you, but it is also giving great hope to everybody who is witness to your life. Now, I don't want to sign up for any more suffering. I'm going to be, Jesus, rescue me. That's my first choice. But my greatest heart's desire is to use me. We know that this is temporary, folks. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. Don't, don't get angry. Don't get bitter. Don't grow resentment. If you're suffering, God is refining you. I will also add one more thing <laughs> that suffering is sanctification, but suffering is also because the world has to take out their anger and brokenness on someone. And it will often be you and me because we are Christ followers. You just have to let that sink in a little bit. But Jesus said it this way, the world will hate you because you're my disciples. Now look, don't do something stupid so that they hate you, okay? They don't need any help. And I'm not even going to give you examples of the stupidity that we see on Facebook and social media. Oh my goodness, can I get a witness on that? Stop being stupid, right? That'd be a shirt, that's not my new slogan. Don't be stupid. But I can tell you this, the world is, is upside down from how God created it. On this day, or on, this is the day we celebrate Palm Sunday. That's when the beginning of the Holy Week happens. It's when Jesus was put on a colt and he was walked through the city streets and all the people grabbed palm branches and they waved them and they put them down making a road for him and they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were ushering in a king and yet Jesus didn't ride a white stallion. He rode a donkey. He didn't have the clothes of fine linens and, and, and what a prince or a king would wear. He wore beggar's clothes, servant's clothes. He didn't carry a sword. He carried humility and kindness and grace. He didn't move through by force. In fact, he allowed himself to be bound up and beaten and crucified. And by all accounts, he was not a very good king. But through his suffering, 
He gave us freedom. Because here's the thing. You can't rise from the dead if you're never killed. You cannot rise from the dead if you do not experience suffering. It's not possible. Because that's the way it works. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he declared once and for all, grave, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? It is finished. He said it on the cross. It's finished. Your sin debt has been canceled. And God has given you life through his son. Amen? Ah! I'm so excited I can't even stand it. This morning I'm going to ask you to respond to God. If you're here, if you're watching by Facebook or by TV, and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, the simple gospel is this. It's by grace you're saved through faith, not anything you can do. If you die today without a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible says you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. But the Bible also says we have good news. For God so loved the world, that's you, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the good news. This morning, will you trust in Christ? And the second thing, this morning, if you're here and you are wrestling through trials and struggle, look, from Genesis to Revelation, there's bad news. It's all over. But from Genesis to Revelation, there's good news. Because the good news always follows the bad news. Every single time. That's the redemptive nature of God. If you're here today, you are wrestling with your suffering. I want you just to hold on and hang on to the truth that Jesus Christ brings you through His Word. Amen.